Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time we're going back to cover the time Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels couldn't get a match in the ring, so they decided to fight each other backstage instead. It's King of the Ring 1997. Kyush, what was it about the King of the Ring that always seemed to result in something crazy happening? Have you ever thought about how the King of the Ring was the most insane pay-per-view in WWE history? You know, now that you mention it, every time we've ever covered a King of the Ring pay-per-view, it's been like an hour of backstory before we talk about yeah. what's usually a pretty shitty show in and of itself. The shows themselves are largely not that interesting in terms of what's actually in the ring, but I think it's just some of that summertime sadness, man. Once it rolls into like June or July, wrestlers just start getting punchy. <laughs> You get the post-WrestleMania itch or like, you know, the temperatures are going up and they're in these old ass arenas that don't have good air conditioning. But yeah, just for whatever reason, people are quitting, people are getting fired, people are fighting like every single king of the ring. Somebody gets hurt, somebody quit the company, there was a giant fight backstage. It's incredible how crazy these shows all seem to be. And this one was no exception. I do wonder if part of it is just that this is the time of year where they're going to go to all those small towns they wouldn't normally go to because the summer is where you expect not to make your money. Like that's the pay-per-views are going to be less big. The payoffs are going to be lower. So guys are going to be miserable. This is when you're going to go to Des Moines, Isla, Iowa and Providence, Rhode Island and shitholes that you never normally go. Sorry if you live in either of those two places. (laughs) (laughs) So this year for the King of the Ring. Yeah, the company is under pressure. By now, they know WrestleMania bombed. So they need a win here. They need a big pay-per-view. So they want to deliver two dream matches here. They want to do Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin versus Brian Pillman. Neither of those matches end up happening on this show. Let's be clear. If they do get those matches in the ring, this is probably the biggest pay-per-view of this year. Like, that is unbelievably yeah, huge because wrestlemania bombed like wrestlemania didn't even do 250,000 buys so like i'm sure they could beat that here um some survivor not great i think survivor series did the biggest number because that was when they had brett and sean finally yeah that's the ironic thing is this is the one and only year in wwe yeah. history where survivor series was the biggest show of the year uh so we've covered wrestlemania 13 that's of course the night bret hart beats steve austin in the epic submission match where they did the double turn bret goes heel austin goes face uh the undertaker beats psycho sid to win the wwf title and yeah, wrestlemania that wrestlemania was the one where a couple weeks beforehand Shawn michaels lost his smile and had to forfeit the title and skipped WrestleMania. Um, as you mentioned, that WrestleMania completely bombed, did the worst buy number in WrestleMania history. Um, so this company is starting to feel some financial pressure, but creatively I'd say they're in a bit of a boom period. Um, the post WrestleMania period has resulted in some very good storylines. Uh, Bret Hart has solidified himself as an anti-American heel and he's teamed up with his family. He got, you know, Owen and Bulldog back on the same page and backing him up and later brought in Brian Pillman and Jim Neidhart. And we've talked about the Hart Foundation before, but I think it's one of the best stables ever in wrestling. And it's a stable that was born not of like trying in a lab to create the perfect stable. 
it's just a stable of people who would be in a stable together. That's what made it feel real. Like these, when it comes down to it and everything's going wrong and everyone in the United States hates your ass, who's got your back? These four dudes. Who do you turn to? You turn to your family. You turn to your blood. And then a weirdo who's kind of friends of the family. <laughs> But you don't the really Bra- like having him around. So the Brian Pillman part of this is kind of funny because it felt like there always had to be this clarification that he's not actually part of the Hart Foundation. He's just an associate. But that was the best part. It's just like Brett doesn't like this guy because no one could possibly like this guy. But like he's on their side, sort of. So I feel like if he had lived at some point, they all would have just beaten his ass. <laughs> <laughs> would have just gotten tired of his shit and turned on him. The baby face turn for Brian Pillman, where he becomes Lone Wolf Brian Pillman. <laughs> the follow-up pay-per-view to WrestleMania was uh, the Revenge of the Taker in April. That was originally supposed to be headlined by Bret Hart versus Sid for the number one contender spot. But Sid had a back injury, so they replaced him with Steve Austin. I don't think anybody was upset that we got Brett Austin round two instead of Brett versus Sid. As much as I love Sid, even I have to acknowledge that I would rather have seen Brett versus Austin here. Though it must be said that that is the third best of their three matches, mostly just because I don't think there was a lot for them to do left. Like they did it all. Yeah, they just finally had to have Austin get a win. He won by disqualification when he was about to put Brett in the sharpshooter and the Hart Foundation interfered. So Austin became the number one contender and Undertaker beat Mankind to retain the title, so that set up Undertaker versus Steve Austin for the belt at the May pay-per-view, the uh, Cold Day in Hell, which is one of my favorite pay-per-view names. God, that's just such a damn good name, and an unbelievable main event for the time, because it still feels so early for Steve. Like, this isn't the official main event run for him, but like, as a... As a test run, it's so great. far before it felt like. I mean, like this was not the plan to be putting him in the main event, but with Brett hurt and Sid hurt, there aren't really any other options. I don't. I assume. I mean, who do you think? I assume Sid would have won the Brett match. I, I don't think they were going to go to Brett versus Taker already in May, so I assume Sid would have won the match against Brett, and they would have done a WrestleMania rematch. I that, assume that was the, the cold, idea. The, and it wouldn't have been called The Cold Day in Hell, because I don't know if that really would have made sense as a title. Though I find it so weird that, like, you would do that rematch after it bombed at WrestleMania. Yeah. Like Fair. It's, that's a weird choice. Uh, the night after The Revenge of the Taker on Raw was the epic Brett versus Austin street fight, where Austin just destroyed Brett's leg smashed it with a chair and locked him in the sharpshooter and then attacked him as he was being loaded into the ambulance. And one of the most famous moments in raw history that they've redone 10 million times since then to the point where whenever I see somebody get loaded into the ambulance, I'm just waiting for it to turn out that the guy who beat them up is driving the ambulance. This was the best time of that. I think like the undertakers couple times are like some of the most iconic the number of times Undertaker has hijacked somebody's personal vehicle. He loves to, yeah. Undertaker loves that Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> the one he did to Teddy Long will always stick in my mind. It's one of the funniest pieces of unintentional comedy they've ever done. But yeah. this, is, this is the original. Like, this was the trope setter. And this one was very cool. It just felt like a break of the wall yeah. at the time. Just like, 
if you ever saw somebody loaded into an ambulance, it was a very somber event. And even that was very rare at this point. That was like a behind the curtain we never normally got to see. So for like a, a guy to be like, ha ha, I'm driving this shit and I'm going to go murder him. Just felt like a big, big jump across the wall. Yeah. Uh, one of the best Raws ever to that point. It's not really showing up in the ratings yet, but yeah, got to give credit to the devil himself, Vince Russo. You can kind of tell that he's started to get more involved in creative at this point. Before this stretch and like up until like mid 96, maybe raw was maybe the most boring television show ever. Yeah. I mean, have you ever gone back and tried to watch like those old raws in order? They're terrible. Yeah. Originally I did like a raw rewatch all the way from like midway through 96, all the way to 2005. Okay before I finally had to tap out because it was so bad. I originally wanted to try in like January of 96, but literally the, the it was unwatchable just trash. Just matches. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just not even and a show. that was the point where they were doing, like they'd do one live one and then they would tape the next three afterwards. So you've got a dead crowd. They just run out of wrestlers over the course of the tapings. So like by the third, t- by the last Raw, the one before the pay-per-view, it's like, okay, we're going to have 10 minute, like a 10 minute match between like, I don't know, Tom Brandy and Hardcore Holly, just because we have to fill some time here. Exactly. And like that's when I grew up watching Raw. And to be perfectly honest, most of the weeks I wouldn't watch Raw at that point. I'd watch like the recap show on Saturday morning because it was more entertaining. That's how bad Raw was. <laughs> um, at, at the cold day in hell in May, Undertaker beat Austin to retain the title after interference from the Hearts. Austin hit Undertaker with the stunner. Looked like he had him pinned. Pillman rang the bell, which distracted Austin and the referee. And Undertaker recovered to Tombstone Austin and pin him. But showing the value they saw in Austin at this point, they let Austin come back after the match and stun Undertaker at the end of the pay-per-view. Yeah, the idea that Taker, who's your champ, and like you're putting a lot into him right now, and then have, to, not Austin, have him beat in the ring with his finish and then come back and hit it again so he's the thing you're thinking about at the end. That's a huge push. The next night, May 12th on Raw, Brett called Shawn Michaels out to the ring at the end of the show. We had not seen Shawn for a little while at this point because he was still recovering from his knee injury. Um, Brett, while in his wheelchair, proceeded to launch into a 10-minute monologue about how much he hated Sean as Sean just glowered at him, didn't say a word. Brett eventually stood up out of his wheelchair and dared Sean to hit him. Sean knocked Brett out with sweet chin music. Then the Hart Foundation came out to attack him and Austin made the save. Great segment. One problem. Brett's promo ran too long and the show went off the air before Sean hit the kick. So, Here's the thing. If Bret Hart is a dickhead and berates Sean and he hits Sweet Chin Music, and by the way, you can see the footage, like it, it does exist. Like Bret yeah. takes a great bump in the wheelchair, like it looks they, fantastic. Yeah, they opened they opened Raw the next week with it. Like it wasn't yeah. like this became some it wasn't like it was lo- like the cameras cut off and it was lost to time. Like it was on TV the next week. But yeah, Brett goes all the way over the wheelchair. It's a great bump. So then you're going to have a conflicting perspective. Brett says that he just didn't get the time cue and he got a little carried away and he fucked it up. But what would you think if you were Sean in that moment? 
I think I would take the man at his word, but you know, Shawn Michaels is not going to give maybe anyone, but especially not Bret Hart, who we already can't stand that benefit of the doubt. Shawn thinks that Bret sandbagged him here. Well, the problem is, too, is that, like, you kind of see it from Sean's perspective, because basically what happens on television is for this really hot angle, Bret Hart just calls Shawn Michaels a piece of shit, and then Shawn Michaels just stands there and takes it, and then the show ends. But but they're going to work a program that needs to get hot. Like, I don't think there's any benefit to Bret that the hot angle, the payoff, didn't make TV. I know, but I'm just saying, like, the, the level of pettiness that they had for each other at that point. Or maybe that, Brett, Brett doesn't Maybe Brett doesn't care because he's got his million-dollar guaranteed contract, which we're going to talk plenty about over the course of this show. Yeah. Brett is a little bit more petty than he likes to admit, and Sean's a little bit more overly sensitive than he likes to admit. So as with all of this stuff, it's both of their fault, but there's fault on both sides. <laughs> So Sean is absolutely furious, and he is going to get his revenge the next week on the May 19th episode of Raw with the infamous Sunny Days comment. <laughs> um, so on that show, Brett challenges Sean to a match at King of the Ring. Brett says if he can't beat Sean in 10 minutes or less, he will never set foot in the United States of America again. Sean, in accepting the challenge, um, proposes they add a stipulation, which is that all four members of the Hart Foundation will be handcuffed to the ring posts to prevent them from interfering because Shawn Michaels, in a moment of savvy, realizes that the reason Brett is challenging him with the stipulation is he knows he'll have his boys backing him up, and that's how he can beat Shawn in 10 minutes. Shawn Michaels, as... Once again, the only person savvy enough to have read the rule book and realized that he's allowed to instill stipulations. It's a weird concept, but the idea is that this is, Brett is not really healthy. Like he's not going no way is he going to be 100% by King of the Ring after he had knee surgery at the end of April. So this is going to let them work a quick, you know, match with a lot of gaga with, you know, Pillman and the Hearts doing antics around the ring. And Sean, Brett can get his win back from Sean to set up a rubber match, and they can do it in quick fashion. That's the idea. Sean, I should note, in doing his promo here, is totally messed up. Like, yes. has either swallowed a handful of pills or drank a ton before he does this, but like, unquestionably under the influence here. I think he said alcohol and somas is what, uh, Had him feeling good on this day. So this is the quote-unquote Sunny Days promo. Um, He says something to the effect of, Brett, I don't think you could last 10 minutes in in any situation, even if you have been having a lot of sunny days recently. That's the whole thing. This is meant to imply that Brett is having an affair with Sunny. Um, I kind of put this alongside the curtain call in terms of things that have been overblown in wrestling history. Literally, first of all, I'm stunned that anyone caught this yeah. and understood what he was saying. Cause it's very, you know, slyly thrown in there. Like none of the heart guys react to it. Cause I think they just probably didn't really hear it, but to hear Brett tell it, he went home and had Stu like taking him aside being like, Brett, you know, what have you gotten yourself into? 
Okay, let's be 100% clear about this. Nobody in the crowd, at least, had any fucking no. idea what he was talking about. Because no reaction. The idea that Tammy Lincich was, like, having sex with the boys for drugs is not common fucking knowledge at this point. And if they would have attributed it to anybody, it would have been Sean, who was actually having sex with her at this time. Yeah, I mean, I, they may have broken it off by this point, and Sean's, I think, suspicion was that she had moved on to Brett. Um, Brett, in his book, denied having an affair with Sonny. He did say that, I don't know, around this time, he started changing in the women's locker room, and Sonny would be the only other one in there. That's kind of weird. That is pretty weird. But Brett is pretty open about yeah. every other woman that he had sex <laughs> yeah, with. So I tend to, again, I tend to give credibility to it when he says that. Yeah. It's not like Brett stands to, like, he literally says in his book, like, yeah, I was fucking these rats, like, a week before that, and these rats the week after. He's and I, long divorced from his wife at the time, by the time he's written his book. Like, he doesn't really have any reason to lie. And it's not like it's going to hurt Sonny's reputation no. for him to, like, bring her down with him. So, like, really... I, I, ble I believe Sonny has denied it, too. Yeah. And I, I she's think... very open about who she had sex with, like... Very, very open. Very, very open. Watch her shoot interview, ladies and gentlemen. She's very open about it. Um, so, yeah, I I think it's just like a cast-off comment. There's a little bit of bitterness from Sean, a little petulance that comes out in this. But the only way that, like, Stu and the other people know is if, like, Owen goes back and he, like, rings up <laughs> Stu and he's just like, oh, man, Brett's having sex with Sonny, which I don't believe happened. I hope, I hope Stu called Bruce Pritchard or Jim Cornette about this. Hey, uh, <laughs> is my son fucking one of those wrestlers? Uh? No, no, that was all that Bruce Pritchard, that pervert. <laughs> so, yeah, Brett goes home and gets just a river of shit over this, according to him. I mean, maybe Stu read it in the absurd. I mean, my guess is just like, Somebody was reading the sheets, and that's kind of how. Because I just can't believe that anyone watching this show live understood what he was saying. I, I absolutely don't believe that. There's no way. And realistically, it, it almost doesn't even fucking matter. Like, it, uh, the other thing is, unless you know that Bret Hart has, like, a long, wild, varied history of infidelity with his wife, this also isn't that crushing a knockout insult blow. You know what I mean? It just so, isn't that big a deal. Before the next Raw aired on May 26th, Brett called Vince to tell him his knee was not going to be healthy enough to do the match with Sean at King of the Ring. I think there's a combination of things going on here. Yeah, his knee is definitely not healed. Like, you can see he's still limping around. He's got heat with Sean. Also, if he just saw Sean pilled out of his mind and was like, I'm not getting in the ring with that guy, that would be a totally reasonable reaction, I feel. Yeah, that would be 100% fair. Hey, that dude's on something. I'm not putting him <laughs> Send over. Send that dude to rehab. I'm not wrestling him. Say, I'm hurt. I'm not comfortable wrestling him. Okay, that's fair. And. You know, maybe if he was wrestling like Owen or Davy Boy or Austin or somebody he really like knew and respected, he might get in the ring with them when he's not healthy. But I don't think he trusts Sean. I don't think he trusts Sean not to take liberties with him, trust Sean not to try to show him up in the match. Like he's not going to get in the ring with Sean when he's not 100 percent. Like he doesn't know that this match isn't going to break down. They're going to start fighting each other for real. 
this is something that I I don't think we've ever really talked in depth about this particular part of it. But like, think about this all from Vince McMahon's perspective. Okay, he finally feels like he's starting to get some momentum going. After all of these years, he finally has like a couple genuine stars to play with and a new up and coming star who's kind of working. WrestleMania was a disaster. He realizes at this point, Austin's not ready. Taker's not a draw. I have one, one drawing match. I have to get it in the ring. I have to get that money. It's literally going to save my company. And the two motherfuckers that he needs to get into the ring to make this match happen won't fucking do it. It all comes to a head the night after this show when Brett attacks Sean in the locker room and they have a like legitimate fist fight that has to be broken up. And then Sean storms out of the arena saying something about how he's going to Boston, which happens to be where Nitro was that night. Wow. Yeah. He of course did not show up in Boston, but they did acknowledge the fight on the air, which is kind of crazy. But Vince like on commentary was just like, you know, there was some very unprofessional behavior by Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels earlier. They had an incident in the locker room and they've both been sent home as a result. Which is fascinating because, again, this is the kind of thing that you could do now because now, of course, everyone and their mom would have heard about it by the time the show aired. But they'd never do it now because they don't do that kind of thing. Then who the fuck's going to find out? What's the benefit of mentioning it? Anything for ratings at this point. They think people stick around if they hear that Brett and Sean had a fight. I'm, if anything, surprised they didn't do like a sit down interview with Brett about how he kicked Sean Michaels ass because he did. I mean, that's definitely what should have happened, though. To hear people tell of it, literally all he really did was like yank Sean's hair Tore out, out of some root. of his hair. And then Jim Cornette kept the piece of hair because he's a weirdo. Yeah, this is, wasn't like the, a barn burner like bar fight. Like this was so like a slap fight. This is a slap fight between two people who should know better. So backing up now that they don't have Brett versus Sean, they need a new main event for this show. So. They audible to Austin versus Sean here. Um, Austin and Sean reluctantly teamed up and won the tag titles against Owen and Bulldog on the May 26th episode of Raw. That was an awesome match. If you've never seen that before, definitely go check that out. Absolutely. Um, The storyline is that Michaels and Austin, despite being the tag champions, don't get along. Um, Austin went after Brett after they won the tag belts and, left Sean to get beat up by the rest of the Hart Foundation. So the week after that on Raw, Brett said, you know, Steve Austin hurt my knee. I can't wrestle with the King of the Ring. But maybe since Bret Hart, since Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin don't get along, maybe they should wrestle each other. And of course, the two chump baby faces take the bait and agree to do it. Yep. In the defense of the character of Steve Austin, he just really wanted to whip Shawn Michaels' ass. And he should. Those two shouldn't get along. That's the thing. That's what I love so much about them as, like, opponents, is that they're both cool dudes, and they both have very interesting and in-depth characters. But those two people in real life would fucking hate each other and would not agree on any issue. Yeah, and this is where you can say the writing is really maturing, that... We've now reached the point where babyfaces don't have to be friends. 
And if it makes sense for them not to get along, they won't get along, which is a big improvement on, you know, a year before this. It doesn't feel like they would do a storyline like this. No, not at all. And in fact, we're going to get to a point later where it feels like baby faces aren't allowed to get along. And I think that's like the era that we're in now yeah. where like I, I can't remember the last time two baby faces even like said hi in the hallway to each other. Yeah, now just nobody can baby faces can't have any friends. They all have to be psychotic loners. It's which is so funny. This company was built on the foundation of all baby faces love and treasure each other. Um, our title match tonight will be the Undertaker defending the WWF title against Farouk. Uh not the strongest challenger, but really when you look at the roster, there's not a lot of other options here. I mean, I don't know, Bulldog Undertaker, that doesn't sound very good. Uh, he just beat Austin. They're not going to go to Sean yet. Uh, there's really they nobody. They don't trust Sid to show up, so options are limited. Um, Farouk did cut one strong promo where he was being interviewed by Vince, and he asked Vince why there had never been a black WWF champion and only token black intercontinental champions like Ahmed Johnson. Which is unfortunately a sick burn, not so much on Ahmed Johnson, but on this crap-ass industry they all wrestle for. Also, also we're getting the curtain pulled back that we're acknowledging that Vince isn't just a, you know, wacky announcer he's the owner of the company which they had increasingly been doing around this time but you know just another case of them doing this here yeah they kind of tried to twist the narrative in recent years i think that just because vince never really liked this whole time where people kept referring to him until he was ready but like they're trying to twist the narrative into like vince suddenly came on screen and acknowledged that he was the owner and people were like what we had no idea no they've been talking about that openly for a year like everybody Shawn michaels was doing it in every interview he did yeah he literally just cut, like turn and point to vince mcmahon and be like hey booker man give me a, give me a match since this is your company Vin man there are no words in the english language that make me like cringe more than Vin man Vin man he called him that for years um the real intrigue in the storyline is with paul bear um undertaker burnt his face with a fireball at the revenge of the taker he returned a few weeks later with his face covered in bandages threatening to reveal the undertaker's secret if undertaker didn't take him back as his manager he gave the undertaker one week to take him back or he would reveal the secret he comes out on Raw. It's uh, the main event of that May 26th Raw after the tag title match. He comes out. He starts to reveal the secret. He says, uh, the day we buried your parents, there were three graves. Um, Undertaker showed up, choked him, but then let him go and knelt before him to signal his submission to him. Um, you know, whatever the secret is. It's so dastardly devastating that The Undertaker is willing to go back to Paul Bear. Um, great storyline. I can definitely, I wasn't watching yet by this point, but I would have been hooked on, you know, what is The Undertaker's secret? Were you watching at this point or was this too early? No, I don't start for another about six months. Okay, I was about to say, because I, I, I would have been curious to see what you thought The Undertaker's secret was, since it couldn't have been Shawn Michaels, so I don't know what you would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I hear that there were three graves, 
I would have been thinking the third grave was the Undertaker's grave and he was resurrected. Okay, so here's what I thought. This is the Papa Shango thesis. I was 100% sure that this was all building to just revealing that Mankind was his brother. Oh, that's an interesting one. Because, like, they already had history, and it would have kind of made sense to be like, that's why Paul Bear was managing him in the first place, and here was this, like, disgusting, degenerate shithead that Undertaker had to claim now, and Undertaker would be like, that's not my brother, and Mankind's like, yes, I am, you know it in your heart. And, like, I, I also... I think that Mankind could have, like, passed for Paul Bearer's son so easily. Yeah, they both got squeaky voices. And they both got fat asses. So, you know, it, it just kind of works. Yeah, this is, Paul Bear has changed dramatically here. He stopped dyeing his hair black. He's, um, you know, started, gone from the, oh, yes, to more of, like, a fire and brimstone type. Shaved his mustache. Um, read in The Observer that... He was originally going to bleach his hair like platinum blonde, but he was advised that after all those years of dyeing his hair black, if he bleached his hair, it would probably all fall out. Imagine if he were bald here. He'd just, like, become James Mitchell, basically. If he were bald here, I think it would be much more horrifying, actually, if, like, the fire had burned his hair out. I agree. Um, I I like him actually a lot better like this. Uh, This is basically just Percy Pringle, like the manager that he was like in the South back in the day. Like this is very, very, very cool. And he's very good at it. Yeah. My favorite Paul Bear is the orange haired Paul Paul Bear. Might just because that's, you know, kind of what I grew up on him as. But I think it's just a much more versatile character than, you know, dark haired Paul Paul Bear that just goes, oh, yes. I've said before on this podcast, and I know it's one of my more controversial opinions, but The Undertaker mostly sucked ass in the 90s. And Paul Bear is part of that package. For the most part, despite his overwhelming talent as a manager, when he was forced to be the character that you're describing, it sucked. He was one-dimensional. He never got to do anything. Seeing what he can actually do here is like an indictment of like the strings they had on him. Same with Taker. Now that he's actually having matches and showing personality and cutting promos, it's like, why did you wait so long? So in the Observer, Meltzer had speculated that um, because they had just re-signed Charles Wright, that he was going to be returning as Papa Shango, and it would turn out that he had, he had raised The Undertaker from the dead, of course. Turns out they put him in the nation instead. Um do you think there was actually consideration to using him as Papa Shango here? Or was this just Meltzer speculating? I think this is one of the more blatant times in history where Meltzer kind of got caught of yeah. being like, oh, they hired Papa Shango, huh? Well, he must be doing the Papa Shango character. And it's probably going to be this. And if he's right, he seems like a genius. But he yeah. was way off. I don't think they ever planned on that. That That's... I'm not saying that that's it's not the, an idea. It's just the wrong time. As they're going with a more realistic product, like wrong time to bring in the voodoo priest. Now, granted, they do bring in the the burn victim brother, yeah. which isn't all that with magical powers. That's not all that much more realistic, but it feels a lot more, if a lot less cartoony than yeah. Papa Shango coming back. It at least feels more substantial. Yeah. So. To get into the show, it's uh, Sunday, June the 8th, 1997. We are at the Providence Civic Center in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, 
9,312 fans in attendance. I don't know if that's the paid number of the actual attendance. If that's the actual attendance, that's pretty brutal. It's pretty bad to begin with. There's a lot of empty seats here. The building holds like 16,000. And like, this isn't a great town for W. Like, this is WWE's area. It's an old, it's a hot town from back in the day, but right. it's, it's not a big town. And they're not hot at this point, but like, yeah, back when, you know, they, uh, they held one of the early Royal Rumbles here and they said, they, or I think it was the 94 Rumble they had in Providence. They sold the place out. They had 16,000 there, but yeah, things have fallen off even since then. Yeah. It, it's an indictment that they're doing this shitty business in a place that has been pretty much a layup for them before. I, I just, I, it's funny because. In retrospect, we would be like, man, why couldn't the fans see it? Like, everything's turning around. The TV's getting so good. But it takes, like, six months yeah. for, like, the people who are actually still watching your shitty product to, to, like, tell all their friends, like, hey, it's actually good now. You should tune in and check it out. You should actually believe me this time. I know I told you it was good before, and then it was just a 15-minute smoke and guns match, but I promise it's actually good now. Uh, the show does about 175,000 pay-per-view buys, which is just a brutal number for what's supposed to be a major pay-per-view. That is not much more than like a like in-your-house number. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. AEW. I mean, it's a different era now, but yeah, like AEW doing like 120 to 150,000 buys, and that's a much thing. higher price point. Yeah, it's a different era oh, now. With, it makes with, it harder. With, with inflation, I think the 30 bucks back then is probably over 50 today. You're right. But even so, like it's anything under like 200,000 is real, real trash when you're really like putting big matches in the ring. And again, like to reiterate, this company is in a difficult financial spot. Like WrestleMania did at least 100,000 buys less than I think they were expecting. That's millions of dollars in revenue they missed on. And they've now got all these guys under guaranteed, at least their top guys are all on guaranteed contracts now, including Bret Hart, who is on a million-dollar guarantee that he signed the previous October, um, which means that come October, they're going to have to pay Brett the difference between what he's made and that million-dollar number. And that's a lot of cash they're going to have to come up with. It's around this time Brett says Vince first approached him about trying to, what he would say, restructure the contract and defer some of the salary to the back end of the contract. And Brett, of course, you know, wasn't interested in that. But... This is around the time we start to hear like Vince starts openly discussing like maybe they have to go into bankruptcy and try to reorganize because they just as these contracts start to come due, they're just not going to have the cash to cover all this. Like if they owe Brett, I don't know, three, four hundred grand, if they owe Undertaker a couple hundred grand, Michaels a couple hundred grand, that's going to be a real hit to this company's finances. Kind of thinking about this show led us to like an idea for like a really good <laughs> something to, or a really good. So you think you can book of just like, what if they do go bankrupt? Like, what do you do with the money? Who do you think you can keep, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think it's even remotely a question that you've got to get rid of Brett. Like he's making oh, way yeah. too much money. Yeah. My, what I've heard is like Sean has the next biggest contract and Sean's guarantee was like 750,000. So Brett 
is making 250 grand more than the next top paid guy. And at this point, I don't think you can say Brett is your biggest star. Like Austin is rapidly going to surpass him if he hasn't already and certainly surpass him in America. Here's the thing about Brett. Brett has never really become the drawing card in America that they wanted him to be. He's been steady. He's been like the linchpin of their main events, but like this is the first time in five or so years where it's probably okay to not have Brett. Like you'll probably be okay. Yeah, borne it, out it, by the fact that they lose him and then proceed to yeah. go into the boom period without him. And Austin's probably making like what two hundred grand at this yeah. point. Like he was yeah, hired they, in yeah, as a mid carder. Yeah, they've still got Austin on the deal he signed when he was the fucking ringmaster. So they're getting him for cheap until his deal runs out. And I can't. I don't know when that is. Probably like it's probably. I think it's sometime in '98. They probably signed him to a three-year deal at the end of '90. At the end of '95, he signed. It was probably a three-year contract. So this would be about the time. You know, in a couple months, they'd probably start talking to him, start negotiating a year out to get him signed to an extension. But like right now. But he's gonna say like, I mean, I'm a bigger star than Brett. I want a million dollars like Brett's getting. And I mean, that's fair. And he absolutely deserves it. Like, I mean, that's the thing. What If I were Austin, too, I would have been like, yeah, give me less downside. Give me a higher percentage of my merch, because that's where most of his money's coming from right now. But, like, even so. So, like, Sean, who's making 750 which is still a lot for Vince at this point, yeah. but he's much more relevant on the shows. He's younger. He has more in the tank, or so you would think that he does. Yeah. Uh, he has, like, a lot more matchups that he hasn't gotten to, and he's more over at this point. I mean, not at this exact moment, because Bret Hart has just exploded with his heel turn. But, like, you, and he seems more loyal to Vince personally. Like, even if the bad times start. You, you <laughs> even like if the, he's occasionally threatening that he's going to go show up on Nitro this night. Yeah, I don't know if Sean actually is more loyal, but I think that Vince thinks Vince would perceive is. him as more loyal because, yeah, Vin, Vince McMahon sees himself in Shawn Michaels. I can't decide for the life of me if Shawn Michaels actually had Vince's back or not. Like, if it had actually gone bankrupt and he had to take a pay oh, cut... No, he w- oh, no! He desperately wanted to go hang out with his buddies in WCW. That was all he wanted. Like, okay, but here's the thing. He's really boo-boo-faced after Hall and Nash and Waltman left. The problem with that, though, is that, like, it seems weird that he takes Vince's side and agrees to do the screw job, Because that literally tarnishes him for the rest of his career. I don't think it was weird that he took the opportunity to fuck Brett over. I know, but there's more to it. And nobody was supposed to find out. If he was really that naive, then I think less of Shawn Michaels. Anyway, we're not relitigating the screw job here. Like that's, that's a whole deep well we can get into. It's just, I find that very interesting. But the point that we're making is that Brett had to fucking go or take a big ass pay cut. Yeah. I just, yeah, it's one of those things like, is it dishonorable that Vince, you know, is going to break the agreement? Yeah, but it just had to happen. Like, he was not going to... It, it's not that he can't pay, pay Brett the million dollars, although it's, you know, tough. It's that he can't have that be setting the salary cap for everybody else. Like, yeah. it can't pay Brett a million, Austin a million, Undertaker a million, Sean a million. If you're paying those guys a million, suddenly, you know, Bulldog wants 700,000. Owen wants 700,000. Like, it was the same reason they couldn't bring Goldberg in during the invasion. Like, you can't afford to just reset your salary structure like that. 
which is very understandable. And that's absolutely how that business works. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that Brett's never been a bigger pain in the ass than he is right now. Yeah. The one match that you need to get out of him, you can't get it. Yeah. <laughs> he won't do it. And then he has to beat the guy up the next night. It's just like this whole summer is just a nightmare. And like your highest paid employee by a lot, by like a huge number is like your shittiest worst employee just being a giant. I mean, like obviously Sean gets all the crap for being immature in this era. He deserves it. But like, yeah, let's reflect on how Bret Hart like totally screwed up this pay-per-view. Yeah. Like it, Sean was on drugs. He was like not, in, <laughs> he was depressed. He was not in a good mental place. Bret Hart just did this as a sober human being. He's just a petty, jealous dude. He just couldn't resist punching Sean in the face any longer. He had been wanting to do it for like two years at this point. Ah, these guys. (sighs) On commentary, we've got the team of Vince McMahon and Jim Ross. Uh, No Jerry Lawler because he's uh, wrestling in the tournament tonight. Um, You know, Vince is Vince. I'm not a big fan of his commentary. I like Jr. Um, as the analyst, though, I thought, um, I mean, JR is obviously great play by play, but I really enjoyed him kind of being, you know, fact man JR here. I always thought that if they could put like a really good announcer with JR, he could actually be even better as an analyst than he was as an announcer. Like he yeah. was, that seemed like more a good fit for his role. That's more how it was in WCW. Like he kept looking for somebody to, to like take the heavy load. So he's great here. Unfortunately, part of his role of being an analyst is he just buries Vince ruthlessly without <laughs> Vince even realizing it. It serves it. There's a lot of him immediately pointing out things that Vince did wrong. Not like saying like, hey, Vince, you fucking buffed that call. It'd just be like, Vince would be like, what a maneuver. And Jared would be like, yeah, that was a suplex, Vince. <laughs> On the free-for-all, the Headbangers defeated Bart Gunn and Jesse James in six minutes and ten seconds. Ooh, they weren't even the New Age Outlaws yet. No, it's Bart Gunn and Jesse James. Not oh, Phil. my God, it's Bart? Yeah. That's a weird... That's fucking weird. What if they put them as a tag team instead of Billy? That would have been odd. I think they still would have gotten over, because I think Billy's irrelevant. Yeah, I think it was all about Road Dogg. It's all Road Dogg. Like, Bart isn't as good as Billy, and, like, Billy's great athlete, big guy, but, yeah, I don't see any reason it couldn't have worked with Bart instead of Billy. Yeah, just need somebody to take the hot tag. It yeah. could have been pretty much anybody. You're right. All Billy said was suck it. Anybody could have done that. Bart Gunn would have found a way to fuck that up. Suck it. The opening promo is all about how this could be a night of firsts. Uh, For the first time ever, we'll have tag team champions facing each other. Uh, We could have the first ever African-American WWF champion. And one of Helmsley, Mankind, or Lawler, Lawler or Ahmed Johnson will be the king of the ring for the first time. That is pretty cool. Then we cut into the arena for some very unimpressive pyro. This was... Pretty low energy. They just shouldn't have bothered. I have a question right off the bat. Are the two people holding the doors at this one, Matt and Jeff Hardy? I don't know. Are they? Were I, they one year? Were they one year? Yes, they were. <laughs> I didn't know that. And like the one looks so much like Jeff Hardy. This could be it. Yeah. 
Oh, I got to look that up real quick. I, again, they're trying to cut costs. They probably didn't want to pay anybody extra if the Hardys were there anyway. This is oh, their... no. It was 1995. Oh, 95. They held the doors. I was going to say, like, yeah, they were, I mean, wasn't the, this way they didn't have to pay anybody extra to do it. Yeah, that that was the one where, like, Ahmed comes bursting through the doors and they take, like, the huge bump off of it because he, like, throws the doors into them. Anyway, go back and watch that King of the Ring and know that that's Matt and Jeff. And the little jester outfits opening the doors for people. Opening match. We've got a King of the Rings semifinal as Ahmed Johnson takes on Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Uh, these two actually faced off in a match in the first round of the tournament. And Ahmed won by disqualification after China hit him with a chair. Helmsley was then given a second spot in the tournament. The kayfabe explanation was that he was threatening to sue the company because he hadn't been given proper instructions before the match to explain that he could be eliminated by disqualification. He was actually filling in for Vader, who was unable to compete because he was injured after having a very stiff match against Ken Shamrock at the May pay-per-view. Wow. If you've ever seen that one, they just beat the hell out of each other. That's one of my favorite matches of all time because Vader's whole reputation was he'll start shoot fights in the middle of matches just to entertain himself. And like, this is the one time where he's like, Oh, he's, I'm going to shoot on this kid and see what he's got. And Ken Shamron was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we see, it doesn't matter how big Vader is. We see the difference between a guy who's a real fighter and just a guy who's kind of a big, tough guy. Like the real fighter is going to win, even if he's a lot smaller. Yeah. Shamrock wastes him in like 30 seconds, which like, I'm sure when Antonio Inoki saw that it broke his heart because he let, he let Vader waste him in 30 seconds, which means that Ken Shamrock is the king of new Japan. God, I would have loved to have seen Inoki's face when he heard that uh, Vader got his ass kicked. He just rude the day you put him over he just sent him a bag of shit in the mail from japan um the tv ads suggested that the final four would be ahmed vader gold dust and savio vega i don't know who would have won out of that group i don't i mean ahmed you'd have to think right like yeah ahmed would make sense ahmed he hasn't been doing a ton lately but he's about to get a heel turn and a run against the undertaker so it would probably make sense for him to win. As another peek behind the curtain, at this point, Ahmed Johnson is my favorite wrestler. I, I live and breathe Ahmed Johnson Boy. at this point. I know that that's weird, but that's just where I was in my life. Did you just love guys wearing multiple pairs of knee pads? Apparently, I thought that was a very kitsch look, yes. <laughs> uh, there was just something about him. And now what I recognize is that I appreciate that what I appreciated about him, which is that he just seemed more dangerous than the other guys on the roster. He seemed like more kinetic, like he was like just knocking motherfuckers Frequently over. Frequently dangerous to himself. Yeah, it turns out that my first favorite wrestler was the Ultimate Warrior. And he really felt to me like the new Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. And the way that I apparently meant that was he was dangerous to everyone and shitty in the ring. <laughs> But, like, he's at least an up-and-comer who you could kind of feel like could win that, and it would have made sense. Because I was 100% sure he was winning this. Of course, Helmsley was supposed to win the tournament last year, but that changed when he was punished for the curtain call. He's going to get to win it a year later here, and I think we agree it's the best thing for him that he didn't win last year because he wasn't ready last year. Not even remotely ready. You could argue very effectively that he's not ready now. No, not really. This Triple H sucks. 
Uh, he's got China backing him up. I feel like that's the best part of his act is he's got China who's massive at this point. I don't think we talk enough about like China, like China, like after the surgery, when like, she's like really making an effort to become more of a character and more of an in-ring wrestler and stuff like that. That's like a very different character here. This woman who never speaks, who was just like a threatening woman and like, all in spandex who's coming out to like beat some asses is awesome mountain of a woman like six foot 200 pounds jr says she has a 350 pound bench press and you believe it when you look at her triple h is legitimately like six foot four yeah. 250 like big dude but he doesn't look that much bigger than she does yeah she looks like his bodyguard you know how hard it must be to find bodyguards for him and like she works, she's different. Um, Jr. plays up the contrast and how Ahmed and Helmsley grew up. Ahmed was one of eight kids, had an abusive father, left home at age 13 to join a gang. In comparison, you know Helmsley was an only child, wealthy parents, had a wrestling tutor from the time he was five years old. Has every advantage here. Um, the crowd is hot for Ahmed. He Spends the early part of the match overpowering Helmsley. He does like a multiple bench press press slam, which is incredibly impressive when Helmsley has got to be 240 pounds. I noticed, too, that when he's doing it, he's like walking back and forth and he doesn't have his legs set under him. This is not proper form for doing something like this, and he's still doing it effortlessly. On the outside, Helmsley manages to reverse a whip and send Ahmed into the ring steps to take over. Um, He works over Ahmed for a while, and then Ahmed makes his comeback. He hits a spine buster and a scissors kick because he's apparently been watching a lot of Booker T tapes. I guess, shit. Um, He'll, of course, later feud with Booker T over the letter T. You mean the greatest feud in the history of professional wrestling? Yes, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Ahmed gets distracted by China. That allows Helmsley to catch him with the pedigree and get the pin in just under eight minutes. Uh, Nothing special here. Nope. Okay. (laughs) This is probably about as good a match as Ahmed's capable of having at this point. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's lost. I mean, he's put on quite a bit of weight and he's had a lot of injuries by this point. So he's starting to lose that explosiveness. I am genuinely stunned that he got pinned like clean as a fucking whistle with the pedigree in the middle. That was surprising. Well, the funny thing is, and like I'd say they've given up on him, but the plan was for him to wrestle the Undertaker for the title at the next pay per view, but he got hurt before yeah. they could do the match. Not to spoil it, but he's going to hit Taker with the Pearl River plunge yeah. at the end of this show yeah, in the main event. I think the way they're looking at it is just like, oh, he can afford to take the loss because he's going to get this heel turn, this new hot angle right after this. But I don't know. That's an odd way of booking in my mind. But I guess they're saying if he wins the King of the Ring, what's his motivation to turn heel and join the nation? I mean, what if the nation comes down and helps him? Yeah. Fair point. Makes sense to me. Uh, next up, we've got our other King of the Rings semifinal as Mankind takes on Jerry Lawler. Um, some really interesting stuff's been going on with Mankind on the way in here. This is where they've been doing uh, the sit-down interviews with Jim Ross. You know, a series of them they do like you know one per week for five weeks straight. Um, you know, we've talked about these before, but these 
are some of my favorite interviews of all time. Like this is just remarkable stuff from Foley. I always wonder, like there wasn't like a script for this. So like, I know that Jr. has his questions to ask, but like, I wonder how much they knew about Mick's actual story and what he was going to say going into it. Because like, by all accounts, Vince is literally standing there off camera watching this. And he's like, this is what makes him fall in love with Mick. Yeah. Like this is, he is spellbound as Mick Foley unle- unfurls his genuine life story. Yeah, Jr. Makes, yeah. Jr. would describe this as um, they did it like in the evening after work, and despite that, as they were doing it, like more and more people were walking into the studio just because word was getting around like what Foley was doing, and people were transfixed, and then they can't see everybody back there because the lights are so bright. And at some point they just hear Vince's voice go, this is outstanding. Just imagine like the lights come down and then like there's 50 people in the room and they're all just hanging on your every word. Like, and it's night. Like these people can be home with their families and instead they're here watching this. I just, Mick Foley's specific kind of genius always came from taking his own personal turmoil and working it into whatever his wrestling character was. This is some very real heavy stuff here. Yeah. He couldn't make a character work unless he could make it relate to himself. Like he could, he had to channel his own personal pain into what was going on. Yeah. And what made mankind work is that Mick was going through a lot of emotional pain at this time. Yeah. He just did the rejection of being told he couldn't play Cactus Jack in the WWF that he had to have this like outrageous, ridiculous character instead for anyone to care about him. As he says, um, he gave himself the name Cactus Jack when he was first breaking into wrestling because Cactus Jack was a terrible name for a terrible wrestler. And he thought he would only play it for a few months and then he would get to be dude love. Instead, he had to play Cactus Jack for nine years. And like, just imagine it from his perspective, even like understanding his situation. Imagine like the whole time you're in wrestling, you're told you're never going to make it because you're too fat. You're too ugly. Like you're too gross. And then you get there and they're like, yeah, we can use you, but only under a mask is a creep show wrestler who like yeah. tears his own hair out because you're a monster. Yeah. You, Mick Foley, are physically a despicably ugly monster. Yeah, you are the hunchback of Notre Dame. And so like all the thoughts that he's ever had in his life along those same lines, he's feeding that. That's where this comes from. It is dark. There's so many highlights here when he talks about um, getting his lip busted open, playing on the playground as a kid, and how he liked the taste of the blood, how you know he ate one worm because he was getting made fun of on the playground, and after that, kids started saying that he ate a plate of worms every night for dinner. Um, uh, talking about doing the dude love you know, movie video when he was young, hitchhiking to Madison Square Garden to see Jimmy Snuka in the cage match. Um Talking about how he, you know, how he started doing the death matches in Japan. He finally felt at home. How um, every night, every time he puts the mandible claw on someone, he envisions it's Vince McMahon. He's putting it on, and he's wondering, you know, why couldn't Vince McMahon have signed me back when I was good? That is just, yeah. 
Uh, and Elvis makes him a huge baby face. That's the thing. I don't. That was obviously could not have been their intention was to make him an enormous baby face. I think it is because Vince here is putting over how he's getting cheered, even though honestly it's not really. He's not really getting that many cheers here. I think they were trying to turn him. I don't think they could have possibly understood like the level of like beloved permanent baby face they were making him. He could never go back after this. There's no turning Mick Foley heel once we hear this story. He's like an ultimate underdog story come to life. Like to uh, this day. And I missed something. The the one the story he tells about meeting Shawn Michaels and Shawn yes. Michaels telling him, asking him like is is this who you thought you'd be growing up? And Mick responding, no, Sean, I wanted to beat you. And like, that was the way that people tell it. That was just such an offhand comment from Mick. Like, no, I, I thought I would be Shawn Michaels. And it like rocked everybody else. Yeah, like nobody could believe that this guy like was supposed to be a heartthrob. But look back at it. He was a pretty good looking dude when he was young. Absolutely. And like, there's something, and I think all of us, and I'm not trying to get too high-minded here, that, like, we always kind of imagine we could be, like, the biggest and the best and the greatest and the best-looking or whatever, and, like, life doesn't really always work out that way. Yeah. And so, yeah, everyone just put all of that love into Mick, and his star turn over the next couple of years was one of the wildest parts of this entire era. On the other hand, he proceeds to cut maybe the worst promo of his career here. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> he gets on the mic, says Paul Bear isn't there because he's more worried about the Undertaker's match. He asks the crowd what kind of king they want him to be, and they don't really react at all. He says Lawler has no clothes, and he's just a pawn in Mankind's chess game. This was a shockingly bad promo. Just Again, Mankind, Mick Foley, one of the greatest talkers ever in wrestling. And this is a gigantic swing and a mess. I bet you $100,000 that Vince McMahon wrote this promo for him. Yeah, maybe. I thought you were going to say Vince was turning to JR, just glowering at him. <laughs> this was going on. This is bullshit. How did you convince me to do this? No, because just like that line about like, uh, the emperor's got no clothes just bullshit. sounds like some corny bullshit Vince would like. Like, there's there's no way that Mick Foley would say that normally. Uh, they go backstage for Todd Pettengill to interview Jerry Lawler. Lawler takes the mic away and does a heel promo on his way to the ring. Um, should note, um, on the way into this show, Jerry Lawler okay. cut the single most vile, homophobic promo I've ever heard on Gold Dust. It How? went something like... Here we go. Here we go. And I quote... Goldust has been crying, asking why his daddy doesn't love him. Well, I happen to know Dusty Rhodes, so I called up old Dust and I asked him. He says, it's because you married the biggest gold digger in all of Georgia and then ran around the ring in a wig, kissing men like a flaming F-word. And as for that little brat Dakota, you should have named her Target, because I heard everybody in Atlanta had a shot at it. Tons of cheers for that promo in Evansville, Indiana. I just... Okay, 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 <laughs> The part okay. calls Terry a gold digger is great. That part's pretty funny. Especially since he's literally gold dust. 
So she's literally a gold digger. So that's yeah. pretty funny. Also, that is literally what Dusty Rhodes thought of her. That's the best part, is that this is a shoot promo. Like, this is... Jerry Lawler's coming in hot with this shit. This kind of feels like his actual opinions. Um, Yeah, the part where he calls gold dust a word I don't say is, yeah. <laughs> Shocked again. I got to note, this did not get cut from Peacock. This is on there if you go watch it. Please don't go watch it. But yeah, it is on there. So maybe, you know, guys, send your reports around to Peacock so somebody can take that bullshit down. Listen, um, we don't talk enough about the fact that Jerry Lawler, <laughs> on the many, many crimes that it's he's committed. Jerry Lawler is, yeah. This isn't even the only time he did this. He was the one who cut the interview <laughs> with Goldust where he asked him, and I quote, are you a queer? And Goldust said no and punched him, and it was presented as a heroic baby face. Just remember this stuff when you try to, when you hear like, the Bruce Pritchard stooges of the world try to claim like this wasn't gay bashing. Yeah. Oh no, we were progressive. We never hated gay people. That's not even what the character was about. No. It was androgynous. Vince McMahon was a homophobe. Bruce Pritchard was a homophobe. And you can take that shit to the bank. Jerry Lawler, probably the world's biggest homophobe. Of course, like we said, the crowd cheered Lawler for that and then cheered him throughout the match with Gold Dust. Evansville... I believe is part of the Memphis territory. I think they might get Memphis TV all the way up there. And I think like that was a town that they Memphis would run. So kind of makes sense that Lawler would have a big fan base there. But given that, of course, they're worried that people are maybe going to cheer Lawler over mankind here. But Lawler is able to get so much heat with his promo that it works out. The only problem with Lawler here really is that aside from existing is the simple <laughs> fact that he's, doing memphis shit like this is all just oh my god the fake foreign the fake foreign object trick (laughs) hadn't seen that since 1975 it's clear that vince is so desperate to have stars on his product and this is kind of similar to when awa brought in jerry lawler and when at the supercar they brought in jerry lawler jerry lawler is always just the name you go to when you're desperate and here he clearly has like total creative control because there's no he's just doing his shit this is Jerry Lawler unleashed. Yeah. He's cutting heel promos on the way to the ring that take 15 minutes. His matches are five minutes, and they're mostly just brawling into the outside the ring. I love the fake. So the fake foreign object trick is you reach into your trunks. I guess in kayfabe, you're supposedly grabbing something to hit the guy with, and then you hide it, and the referee looks for it, and he can't find it, and you pull it back out from somewhere else, you hit him again. You can kill 10 minutes with this. This is the kind of shit they would do back in the day. This is the kind of genius that only the true greats could do. Like, the reason Jerry Lawler is still wrestling to this fucking day when he's like 80 now, he's 47 here, is because he probably took a hundred bumps between the years of 1980 and 2000. Like he just didn't have to. He broke out a drop kick here. That was pretty impressive. I didn't know he had it in him. The annual drop kick from Lawler. The annual drop kick. Um, yeah, he works over mankind. Most of the match. JR makes a crack about not having to call the foreign object and international object. JR was a little punchy tonight. Yeah, that one always rankled him, so it made sense he would make references to it. 
Uh, Lawler hits a fist drop. He goes for a pile driver. Mankind gets out with a backdrop. Lawler tries to roll through with a sunset flip, and Mankind gets him with the mandible claw to get the win in a little over 10 minutes. Um, this was okay. I mean, it did it did what it was setting out to do to get you know firmly established that Mankind was a babyface now. Yeah, I had no problem with it at all. It was pretty good. Then Todd Pettengill interviews Brian Pillman, who laughs at the fact that he managed to get Austin and Sean to fight each other tonight. Austin sneaks up behind him while he's doing the promo. They fight into the bathroom, and Austin shoves Pillman's head into the toilet. For some reason, there's a camera in the toilet stall, so apparently that's not a new development in WWE. I just want to say that the moment here where Brian Pillman's just cutting a promo <laughs> and Steve Austin just sneaks up behind him and like Pillman's like, yeah, that's some bitch Austin. Like I'm a whoop his ass. And Austin just like, Oh yeah, you're going to whip my ass motherfucker. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. You dumb motherfucker. There's just, it's such so much joy in that moment. Like this is the kind of thing that would never ever happen now where like characters are just allowed to interact. This isn't what Steve Austin is here to do today. But if he was walking down the hallway and he saw Brian Pillman talking shit about him, you bet your ass he'd kick his ass. It's okay uh, to let people do that. So they were supposed to wrestle here. They're they're announced as wrestling on Raw the next night, but Austin ends up not being able to do the match because he gets hurt in the Michaels match, which we'll talk about later. So God, that match was cursed. <laughs> yeah, I think they finally did it on Raw. So they got like five minutes because Pillman can't wrestle. I like. It's real. Every time you saw Pillman wrestle th- at this point, it was just sad watching him with his fused ankle try to work a match. Yeah, it was a testament to what a personality he was oh. that they're even still using him because he's not. He's he should just be a manager at this. Oh point. yeah, no, he should absolutely be just a manager and commentator. Like, there's no way they should have allowed him in the ring. The problem is there's genuine money in him and Austin, and they yeah. know it, and it's got to rip them up inside. They never get there. Um. Next up, for some inexplicable reason, we've got Crush versus Gold Dust. Why? Why? <laughs> Crush is, of course, part of the Nation of Domination. Why? <laughs> comes out first. Um, Gold Dust has been doing sit down interviews with Jim Ross. They actually did those. I always assumed they did the Mankind ones and then decided to try it with Goldust. The Goldust ones actually came first, to my surprise. Um, but the, it's where he's been being honest about how he's, you know, Dustin Rhodes, talks about his strained relationship with his father, his marriage, all those sorts of things. They're not as good as the Mankind interviews, but they're pretty good overall. Like, it's pretty emotional when he talks about how, you know, he misses his dad and he wishes he would call him. Do you feel like they just should have made him Dustin Rhodes after those interviews and just dropped the Goldust character here? Yeah, I mean, I'm never an advocate for Goldust, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even it's, like... It's hard to reconcile that they're pulling back the curtain and being like, this is, you know, Goldust the family man, and like they're bringing out his daughter and all these things, and then he's still like wrestling as the freak in gold. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Like, you can make these be like real people... And, like, the natural Dustin Rhodes has much more legs to it, at least at this point, than Goldust does. Goldust Gold is Dust, finished by this point. Goldust won't be relevant again until 2002. It's it's wild that it takes... I like, don't know. It's, it's, I think it's stretch to say Goldust was relevant in 2002. Well, with the Booker T tag team, that was relevant. Oh, okay, yeah, that that that's true. That's yeah, fair. That, that was... 
the next time he was relevant, and then yeah. arguably not again until like 2011. <laughs> the Rhodes Boys in like yeah. 2013. Yeah. Now he's <laughs> more relevant than he was at this point. <laughs> this is an awful match. Crush, oh, ter- Crush is terrible. After what feels like half an hour, Goldust makes a comeback. Uh, D'Lo goes after Marlena, but he catches Crush with a DDT and gets the pin in just under 10 minutes. Um, Meltzer dipped into the negative stars here, and I think it was deserved. Absolutely. And like all through the match, they're referring oh. to this feud that's going on between Crush and Savio Vega. Yeah. Why... Why, in this Black Pride, Black Power stable, you have a random white dude and a random Puerto Rican dude, I can't possibly understand. But, like, the idea that those two are the troublemakers, just kick them both out then. Yeah, well, that's exactly what Farouk does the next night. Yeah, fuck those guys. It's just so weird to watch them come out. And, like, everybody's dressed to the nines in these suits with these amazing, like, African colors on them. And they look amazing. And they look crowded. Crushing fucking mechanics vest. Yeah, they look powerful. And then this fucking dude comes out who looks like he's their meth dealer. And I don't know why he's there. Looks like the dude at the oil change place who tries to upsell you on the air filter. I mean, I would have to assume that they just put a white dude in there to get some heat off of the group, but... Yeah, I think the point, the reason that they didn't want it to be all black so they could say this isn't about race, this is about oppressed people, but fuck off with that. Yeah, what? Well, because he's a Hawaiian? Hawaiian he was in prison. But not Polynesian? Because he, was, because he was in prison. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> you can say anybody's been in prison. He was in prison. He did time. No, I know, but that's what I mean. It's you can just take somebody good and say they were in prison instead of having this dude who was, but sucks. That is the drawback of. I guess I appreciate some of the, you know, making these guys more real characters, but you do start to lose something when everybody just has to be who they actually are. Yeah, a lot of who these guys actually are sucks and isn't bankable in any significant way. Uh, Doc Hendricks interviews the Legion of Doom and Sid, which is the coolest tag team ever. I am resentful, openly pissed off that they did not put face paint on Sid for this match. These guys could have, like, run the territory for at least a year back in the day. Can you imagine? Sid Vicious with the Road Warriors. Like, if this team had assembled in the NWA in 1989... They would not have been able to be beaten. They would have been literally unstoppable. Yeah. Babies would have been born when they hit, like, the combo powerbomb doomsday device. Oh, man. Sid gets him up for the powerbomb, and then he does the device? What? What? Uh, They're going to be teaming tonight against the Heart Foundation. Lots of shouting ensues, if you can believe that. I do like that... uh, I think it was Animal who was just like, yeah, you know that the road, the Legion of Doom is great and we're on the same page, but I don't know about you, Sid. And Sid literally is just like, you don't have to worry about it. I'm the king of the world. That doesn't reassure them. <laughs> then Todd Pengill interviews Owen and Bulldog and Nightheart, and our next match is the Heart Foundation against the Legion of Doom and Psycho Sid in a six-man tag match. Sid had been gone since WrestleMania, dealing with a back injury. He returned at the Raw right before this. He um, challenged The Undertaker to a WrestleMania rematch and then lost in five minutes in the main event. Um, Ouch. I guess this is his punishment for 
skipping the post-WrestleMania tours to play softball. He doesn't care. He's getting paid the same either way. <laughs> Whatever. In that During that match, Jim Ross referenced that Sid had the sweetest softball swing in the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> I wish he had just started using like a baseball bat as like part of his gimmick. <laughs> Would have been terrifying. Oh, Sid swinging for the fences. Um, Despite all this nonsense, big pop for Sid when he comes out here. The dude was just money. There were women screaming when his music hits. Which, if you haven't listened to it in a little while, maybe you should. Because if it you didn't has. know it was coming, A, that theme rules. But B, it's probably terrifying. Yeah. They turn all the lights out. This horror movie music hits. Sid walks out. And yet the crowd is popping. I yeah. love the, he goes, who's the man? They all go, you are. It's the truth. This is pretty much it for Sid in this run. Uh, he's, I think he gets in a, him and Furnace and LaFon get in a car accident like right after this, which there should be a documentary about those three dudes hanging out together. <laughs> um, and then like they make him come to Raw and he shows up and he's supposed to do an interview. And then when it's time for the interview, they can't find him and somebody says, uh, oh, Sid thought he was having a heart attack. They're like, oh, so he went to the hospital. Like, now he just went back to the hotel and they fired him <laughs> the next time. <laughs> like, oh, I had to leave. I was having a heart attack. Learned that from his big good friend, Kevin Nash. Sid just didn't give a shit. No. In the history of people not giving a fuck, Sid is the highest on the list. I do feel bad for Sid because Sid missed out on the three biggest money-making years and yeah. potentially if his entire career. He missed out on the entire Hogan era because he was in the, in the, he was in the NWA at the time where that business was going downhill. Then he jumps right when the business starts to suck in WWF. He stays there until the business starts to get good, but then he gets fired. And then he comes to WCW after the business has gone downhill. He missed all the good money years. Yeah. And he destroys his leg at the end of that WCW run. Despite the fact that he personally was a draw, who was technically successful with the exception of that WrestleMania main event, everywhere he went and everything he did, he missed out on all the biggest years in wrestling history. Yeah. Um, faces spend a really long time beating the heat. Like the, the opening like shine for the faces is longer than I thought this match was going to go. I honestly, I, I can't believe they earmarked this much time for this match. 13 and it's only minutes. like 13 minutes is about seven minutes longer than it should have gone. Uh, Jr. mentions that Nightheart was a political science major at UCLA. <laughs> God damn it. Jr. <laughs> I was just putting over his commentary. I, l- I liked the, you know, factoids. He was pro- I mean, I don't know. It's kind of, The point was that he's more intelligent than you'd think looking at him, I guess. Political science. Then why don't you just lie and say he was a psychology major? It's a work, JR. And nobody would know what he actually majored in. No. How would anybody know any of that shit? We're not. There's no Wikipedia in 1997. We just have to take your word for it. Uh, the heels work over Animal. He makes a hot tag to Hawk. Doesn't get much of any reaction. He gets cut off right away. But then the crowd comes alive for the hot tag to Sid. Uh, he goes to powerbomb Bulldog, but Owen catches him with a sunset flip from the top rope. And the heels get the win in 13 minutes. 
it has to be said it's pretty amazing how not over the legion of doom is yeah they are like total jobbers on this show that's a signing they've got to be regretting by this point they've got to be paying them like minimum 500 grand each right yeah you'd think of the road warriors really coming in for less than that and they got them away from wcw and it was just a waste a total disaster lit that money on fire they didn't have anything left yeah uh then pettengill interviews mankind backstage he says he doesn't feel like a million bucks but at least he looks good that was a pretty funny line yeah i did like that um then it's the king of the ring tournament finals we've got mankind against hunter hearst helmsley um long match here a little slow in the early going and the crowd wasn't really into it at first but the guys won the crowd over during the course of the match um tribute to the bump in of mick foley here like he kills himself to make triple h look good which will become a recurring theme of his career it's actually really funny like i don't think people really think about triple h and mankind as being like two people like linked in history oh they so are is the thing like mick foley puts triple h over at the most important moments of his career like three different times yeah like he's that guy for triple h that gets him to that level without mick foley it never happens for him yeah it's they, yeah it's so interesting they're obviously enemies here and then they actually become friends and dx actually helped Foley win the title but yeah and they go back to being enemies and they have the brutal feud in 1999 and 2000 and triple h of course retires Foley. it's just it's really cool to me yeah, it that, is one of the great rivalries in this company's history. And it makes Triple H, because at various oh, yeah. points, like it's it's the rivalry that toughens Triple H up yeah. and makes him credible as a performer. Yeah. Like Mick takes like three years off of his life bumping for Triple H. Uh, Foley gets hung up in the ropes, which is the spot that caused him to lose his ear. Um, but thankfully, these are actual ropes and not the steel elevator cables WCW used. Yep. Uh, they go to the floor. Mankind gets Helmsley with a backdrop onto the aisle, and then he does his elbow drop off the apron. Both of these onto the part of the floor that has no pad in. Um, Ouch. Yeah. Mankind hits Helmsley with a double arm DDT, but China distracts the referee for long enough to allow him to kick out. Helmsley goes for a pedigree. Mankind backdrops him. Helmsley goes for the sunset flip, but Mankind gets him in the mandible claw. That's. Uh, the sequence that Mankind beat Lawler with, China grabs Mankind by the hair and pulls him out of the ring to break it. That looked painful as shit. <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, Helmsley goes to the top. Mankind gets him in the mandible claw. Helmsley gets him with a thumb to the eye to break it. Uh, Mankind hits the Cactus Jack clothesline that sends both guys over the top rope. Um Mankind goes for an elbow drop off the apron, but China pulls Helmsley um, out of the way and fully slams his head into the railing, which is just a disgusting bump. Ugh. Like, I can't... How do you even conceive of taking that bump? Fuck. And this is when they've still got the bike rack for the railing instead yeah. of that padded security wall they would switch to in later years. Like, your head would literally go, Ugh. like, partially into it. Yeah. Helmsley pedigrees Mankind through the announce table, a rare announce table bump at this point in time. Um, Mankind goes to crawl back in the ring. China 
blasts him with a scepter behind the referee's back, and this thing just explodes. At least she hit him in the back and not in the head, so it wasn't quite as stiff as the one Warrior took from Macho Man. The one where Macho Man lit him up like a candle? Yeah, that's... That sweet, sweet baseball swing of the former professional baseball player. This one still looks super impressive, though. Like, at this point, it feels like Mankind has had his ass kicked by China specifically. Triple H has, like, barely done anything. And Helmsley hits him with a shoulder block. That sends Mankind flying off the apron onto the floor, and he lands on a photographer. That can't have been planned. No. It does feel weird that we're still in an era where there were, like, a lot of photographers around. Like, there just felt like there was a lot of people around the ring. Yeah, it feels like by a year after this, they've gotten rid of that. I don't know what exactly it's for. Maybe they were just still trying to get publicity from, like, the aftermags and stuff like that. But it just feels odd. I think by the last time I remember photography, probably um, WrestleMania 14, I think they left photographers on the floor for Tyson. Right. But after that, they cleaned it up. Um, Mankind kicks out of an arrogant cover, which gets a nice pop. Helmsley follows that up with the pedigree. He gets the win in just under 20 minutes. That was a hell of a match. I mean, again, really tribute to how hard Foley worked here. But yeah, China came off great here. And that's heat for Triple H that he barely did anything. Like China won this match for him. This puts over all three of these people hugely. This is a gigantic success, basically in every way you could try to have it be. Um, Pettengill goes to bring Helmsley his robe and crown. China drags Pettengill into the ring. Helmsley grabs the crown and hits mankind with it, which begins his gimmick where he would break the crown every night because he actually didn't want to wear the thing. How much do you want, like, I believe that Triple H is a really smart guy, and he knows that he does not want to be saddled with this king yeah. bullshit, but I bet you, like, Sean is in his ear, like, just fucking break don't it. Wear this. Yeah, <laughs> Sean is starting up, do not wear that fucking crown. I swear to God, if you wear that crown, it's Colin Hall and Nash, like, oh, you can't wear that crown, man. Like, Nash is being like, yeah, let me tell you about a thing I agreed to once called Oz. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they do the video package for Michaels versus Austin. They come back to the announce table where you know, they put over the effort of mankind. I like this moment that JR says, you know, he's never seen a more courageous performance than what Mick Foley just put on. It's so funny because historically, when you think about the story of Mick Foley, you would think that like the hell in a cell was like right after this and that this was just like part of like this big groundswell of support that he gets. But really it takes like, a year and a half for that to really formulate into him getting over in the way that we think of him being over. Yeah, a bunch of stuff. I mean, a bunch of stuff happens after this. I mean, he gets to play dude love and then he gets to play cactus Jack. And then they, he gets into the main event against Austin, but they do it. They have to turn him heel to do that. But yeah, then he has the hell in a cell match. And even after that, it's really not till he does Mr. Sacco that I feel like he really starts getting over as a face. Yeah. Like I, I very much understand that we, we would all like to think of the story in a very romantic terms of being like, he showed him that he was the toughest man and he'd never give up and he'd die in that ring for them. And the fans began to grow and appreciate him and love him. But the truth is that they really just love the sock. <laughs> yeah, that disgusting okay. sweat sock. 
they they just thought that shit was funny, and that's all it took. Uh, and then the Hart Foundation come out. Brett gets on the mic. He issues a challenge to any five American wrestlers to face the Hart Foundation at the Canadian Stampede next month in Calgary. Uh, that was originally scheduled to be Austin, Michaels, Sid, and LOD, but because Michaels walked out and they fired Sid, it ended up being Austin, Shamrock, Goldust, and LOD. Now, that's still one of the greatest matches in WWE history. Okay. And we covered that show in the archives. Please go back and listen to it because it ruled. Um, but if you put fucking Sid in that match and Sean, the nuclear heat Sean would have had in Calgary Holy there would have just made that shit. special. And then Sid, yeah, think of that team and the Road Warriors. Like what a collection of like yeah. that team would not get along for one second, but they're the most dangerous team ever assembled. It makes a, makes a great story that, like, this is the greatest team of individuals, but the Harps will beat them because they're a team. Imagine if it came down to, like, four hearts and just Sean. <laughs> That's exactly what happened at Survivor Series 93. Yeah. Oh, man. And the crowd just going fucking wild. Um, Brett had said he was going to do commentary on this match, but... Mankind and Helmsley legitimately destroyed the headset he was going to use, so they have to do a thing <laughs> where the agents run him off instead. Is that where they went through the announce table? They destroyed it? Yeah. The you know, $7 headset didn't hold up to that. That's pretty funny. Uh, Doc Hendrick is backstage with Austin. He says he's going to whip Sean's ass tonight, Pillman's ass tomorrow, and Brett's ass whenever he gets the chance. He... Then heads to the ring, and he runs into the Hart Foundation, and referees have to separate them, and Austin goes through the curtain. The thing about Steve Austin's character that I was I fell in love with more than anything else isn't just that he's cool, because he's cool, isn't just that he's like a badass, because he is. It's this idea that he is at total war with every single yeah. other member of the <laughs> roster at all times. It does Chaos not matter... Demon. He is literally on his way to fight Shawn Michaels, a guy who's one of the greatest of all time. He has already had a fight in the bathroom with Brian Pillman. He is openly willing, on his way to the ring, to fist fight five guys. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. He'll do it. That's the beauty of that character. And you believe in your heart, he might win. <laughs> and then Doc interviews Shawn. He says... He's not sure if he's going to tear Austin apart because that's what the hearts want him to do. Uh, and he heads to the ring. Um, Sean gets a nice pop. A lot of screams from the female fans. I was think you might have expected him to get booed here against Austin, but, you know, they both get cheered. They're both tweeners at this point. Like they're both they're both well liked by the fans, but they're both. I don't know that you'd necessarily cheer one or the other and i don't think there's a lot of crossover between fans for either no. one if you're an austin fan you're probably not a michaels fan yeah sean's fans i would speculate are mostly the women and the kids and austin's fans are the older dudes that it does feel interesting that you could have had like almost like a punk scene a rivalry between these two yeah like it, i feel like we missed our chance to explore that fully yeah um, if you've never seen this match, you've got to check this out. This Dude. is worlds better than their match at WrestleMania 14. 
because they're both healthy here. This is before Austin has his broken neck, Sean before his back injury. This is when they can both really go. How is this a match that people don't talk about more often? And I know that the finish is disappointing, yeah. and it's not the main event of this show. And I get those things. But this but is like, a hell of a match. These are two of the best ever to work going yeah. 22 minutes just for funsies. Uh, they start off with Austin hitting Sean with a shoulder block and then flipping double birds. Uh, something kind of weird happens where a like young disabled fan follows over the railing and Sean helps him to the back. Like they literally stop the match for him to do this. Lest you think Sean was being totally altruistic. The kid's mom was pretty attractive and I get the feeling Sean hit her up. <laughs> after the show. Did you notice that? I did not notice that, but that's fucking amazing. Yeah. In the middle of this match, he's just like, hey, whoa, MILF over there. Let me help his kid to the back. Maybe sign a few autographs. Yeah. Good for you, uh, buddy. The match restarts. Austin hits a back elbow and then hilariously mocks Sean's flexing pose. Whenever Steve would do stuff like that, it's just an element of his goofy side that we didn't get to see until, like, dad Steve way later. I love that shit. How many times have we talked about when he stunned Jeff Jarrett and then did the Fargo strut over his limp body? It genuinely seems like Steve Austin had, like, one of the best senses of humor of any wrestler ever. It's just a shame he had to play, like, a humorless son of a bitch his whole life. I mean, they talked about – I mean, you've heard him talk about when he was doing commentary – he was getting in all these great lines. This is like in 96 before he's getting pushed at all. They'd have him do commentary and he'd get all these great lines and he'd be popping the guys in the truck and Vince would edit it out on the show because he's like, well, that would make you a baby face. And I guess he's right. Yeah. It just, there's another version of history where he gets to be that guy. And he's like road dog. Like he's just like a funny as shit. Mid Carter. Uh, JR drops a factoid I had never heard about Austin. His dad played football at Rice and was on the team the last time they played in the Cotton Bowl. That means basically nothing to me, but, I mean, that is interesting. Yeah. I've really never heard Steve Austin say anything about his parents. Can't tell you anything about them. Not even slightly, not even a word. Um, Austin... Or Michaels blocks a Thez press with an inverted atomic drop and then clotheslines Austin over the top of the floor. Uh, Sean hits a big backdrop that sends Austin flying through the air. He hits the ropes and doesn't realize he's running into a cameraman. And we actually get the shot from the camera's point of view as it's happening. That is just some great truck work by whoever was calling that. I don't know if it's Curran White or if it's Kevin Dunn at this point, but like whoever said like get the get the point of view of that camera. As he crashes into it, that was cool. Um, Austin hits the Thez press, and then they do a series of pin reversals, which is super weird to see Austin doing. This, like, mat wrestling, chain yeah. wrestling, cool shit. Yeah. You see forget him, that he was that guy. You see him bridge out of a pin. Like, subsequent to this, he's not doing bridges because his neck is not going to take that stress. No, he, he's, like, rolling out of everything because he can't even stand up straight out of a pin. Uh, they go to the floor. Austin throws up the mats. He tries to pile drive Michaels on the concrete, but he gets back dropped. Uh, he comes back with a press slam out onto the floor, which don't see Steve Austin do a press slam real often. Nope. Uh, they go back in the ring. Austin hits his diving elbow off the second rope. 
Uh, Sean throws Austin to the floor. He follows up with a baseball slide. Sean hits the forearm. He kips up. Backdrop, inverted atomic drop, charges into the corner, but Austin dodges and Sean hits the post. And then Sean's tights fall down and we get a nice look at his ass tattoo. All right, let's be clear. They don't just fall down. This is Sean's thing. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing how often those tights just slip down with Sean Michaels. And this used to be a flair thing, too. Like, I feel like this was like his fond, like, remembrance of Ric Flair. It's just like this is always somehow those two always found a way to get their ass showing. And then Triple H inherited that later, except he'd never be bare ass. He'd always have the thong on. Uh, the ref gets bumped. Sean goes for sweet chin music, but Austin blocks it, hits him with the stunner. He covers it, but there's no referee to make the count. Austin gets Tim White up and stuns him. He then turns around into a super kick. Um that apparently caused Austin's neck to snap. He had a lot of pain, and he went to the doctor to get it checked out. The first doctor he went to told him he had the neck of a 65-year-old and he needed to retire. So this is – I don't want to totally let Owen Hart off the hook for what he did to Austin at SummerSlam because that pile driver was really irresponsible, but there was a pre-existing neck issue here. Oh, yeah. Like, Owen Hart's move is – reprehensible and the fact that people kept doing it in the wrestling industry after that is one of the wildest things that i've ever heard it's that same move paralyzed two different people basically um but in this case austin had been so fucked for so long and i feel like he's even he even downplayed it at the time as being like oh whatever i just got like some neck pain whatever not a big deal because he can't stop now Like, he's literally getting the push of a lifetime. This is it. He's going to make all the, finally make the money, finally be the big star. And, like, he has to believe in the back of his head, like, yeah, if I go out for a year now, I'm done. That's the end. I'm out. That's, I'm going to be in the mid-card, jobbing with assholes forever. Another referee comes down and checks on, but he checks on Tim White rather than make the count. So Sean hits him with sweet chin music. Uh, Um, Sean... Covers Austin. Tim White wakes up to make the count, but Austin kicks out at two. Um, Earl Hebner then shows up and disqualifies both men. Um, It's a great match with a weak finish, but neither guy is going to do the job here. Like, it just wouldn't make sense. I don't know that this particular way of doing this made sense with the storyline a whole ton. Because these guys are like, they were partners but Sean doesn't really hate Austin and he doesn't really need to win this match. They're just having this match to kind of blow off some steam more than anything. Like, this is mostly just that Austin wants to whoop his ass. So to have Sean like super kicking referees because he's so frustrated they won't make the count, it just feels weird. Yeah. But like, the, the obvious yeah. thing to do would have, I think, just been to have the Heart Foundation interfere. Yes. Just, they beat both guys up and then. Sid and the Road Warriors can make the save to set that pay-per-view up. The way you lay this match out is, like, Shawn Michaels, the whole match long, is, like, looking over his shoulder for the Hart Foundation because he knows that's what's going to happen. And Austin ha- is, like, just coming straight at Shawn. So Shawn keeps getting distracted by Austin coming after him, and he's, like, they he finally gets him into the fight, and they're having this fight, and then the Hart Foundation comes down. Shawn tries to get Steve to help him. Steve stuns him, walks out. Shawn Michaels gets the boots like that's that's the way you do this this way is fine but I don't know that it benefits anybody yeah 
they yell at each other and then eventually just kind of walk backstage together. Um, I believe they were booked to lose the tag titles on Raw the next night. Eh, maybe not the next night, because Austin was wrestling Pillman the next night. But they were going to drop the tag belts, but then you know, Sean walks out and stays gone for a while. So they vacate them, and then they do the great dude love angle with Austin. Is this the first time that they do uh, two baby faces who hate each other, the tag champs thing? Yeah, I think so. Like yeah. it's it's weird it's a how that be- thing. it becomes a big time trope later oh, on. They do it. It got to the point where it felt like they did it every time they had two faces feud. Yeah, and especially when they didn't have a strong tag division, they just be like, "Fuck it, just put it on the two baby faces. It's fine. We'll figure it out later." Uh, Pettengill interviews Farouk. He promises he'll be the first black WWF champion. He says Undertaker should worry less about Paul Bear's blackmail and. More about this blackmail. That is a good line. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Should they have just put the belts on Farouk here? No. I mean, it doesn't really matter because they're taking it off of whoever has it pretty soon. Well, yeah, but you need to do the whole Undertaker Sean thing to set up Sean's heel turn. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's fair. Like it does feel like there there could have been room for like a two month Farouk title run, yeah. but yeah, this probably isn't the time. Yeah. Uh, Farouk, we've got our WWF Championship match up next. It's our main event of the evening. It does feel kind of like an afterthought. Oh, after Michaels and Austin, hell yeah, it does. <laughs> but this is still when they're more old school about you know feeling like they need to put the title match on last. And poor Taker, like, presiding over this shit. He doesn't get offered a good opponent until Sean. Then they have, like, some of the greatest matches in the history of wrestling. And then he gets, like, all shitty opponents after that again. This poor motherfucker. Farouk is out first with the nation. He's got D'Lo, Crush, Savio, Clarence Mason, and then just a bunch of randos. Um, We go backstage to Doc Hendricks with The Undertaker and Paul Bear. Hendrick tells Taker the fans will love him, whatever his secret is, and then Bear just cuts him off and does a promo. Um, Taker makes his entrance. He starts off in control. He goes to do the rope walk, and instead of coming down on Farouk, he dives off to the entire nation on the floor. That was super cool. I have never seen him do anything like that before. And it kicked ass. Yeah. What a fucking spot. This gigantic motherfucker. He goes to do the rope walk again, but D'Lo shakes the rope and Taker crotches himself. Um, they go out to the floor. Farouk gets the ring steps. He goes to hit Taker with them, but Taker kicks them into his face. Uh, Farouk recovers and he hits a pile driver for a two count. He goes to the top and comes off with a shoulder block, but Taker catches him out of the air with a power slam. Um, Then the Nation guys start fighting on the floor. Farouk gets distracted. That gives Undertaker time to sit up. Um, Farouk turns around into the tombstone. Undertaker gets the win in just under 14 minutes. Not a very good main event here. I mean, it's about as good as it possibly could have been, if we're being honest with ourselves. Like, Farouk wasn't going to do a lot more than this. No. Um, Taker really kind of works overtime to get something out of this. 
But this just doesn't feel like a match that should have been the main event of a big pay-per-view. No. This felt like an in-your-house main event. Um, after the match, Savio and Crush jump in the ring. They both get choke slammed. Uh, Paul Bear tells Undertaker to choke slam Farouk, and he keeps telling him to do it, so he choke slams Farouk four times. Ahmed Johnson then runs out. He yells at Taker and ends up hitting him with the Pearl River plunge. This is the beginning of a planned Ahmed versus Undertaker feud that included Ahmed turning heel and joining the nation. That was going to culminate in Ahmed versus Undertaker at Canadian Stampede, but they had to scrap that match after Ahmed injured his knee, and that was pretty much the end of Ahmed's WWF push. I can't decide if that match would have kicked ass or not. Like, I kind of feel like that's the kind of guy Taker could have gotten something out of. But at the same time, it's also the kind of, like, shitty, stiff dude that Taker has been wrestling shitty matches with for years now. Yeah, I... There's some potential to just, like, they're both so freakishly athletic big men. Yeah, just watching them, like, both do planches on each other would have been pretty cool. Yeah. And that is the end of this show. Of course, I think the bigger story is the fight between Brett and Sean the next night on Raw, which you know, we've talked about here and in other podcasts. But I, it's just a weird time for this company. Like you said, right as it feels like they're starting to get some success, like their two top guys are slugging it out in the locker room and one of them quits. Honestly, if these two had been able to actually like coexist and get along and wrestle the matches that they should have been, A, there's a good chance that Brett isn't asked to take a pay cut because they're making money hand over fist with this feud people actually want to see. And B, there's probably no room for Austin at the top at this very important moment. Yeah, it's an interesting question of how things could have been different. Um, yeah. It is true that like it's so amazing to me that Vince a couple months after this literally tells Brett, like I have to breach your contract because I can't afford you. And then a couple months later, those financial concerns are totally in the rear view mirror. Like really, as soon as they stop doing the, in your house pay-per-views and raise the price of all the pay-per-views to 30 bucks, like they're pretty much set. That brings in so much more money. They're totally fine. And they have enough money. They can bring in Mike Tyson. Do you think they stopped doing the in your house pay-per-views or, or do you feel like they had to like work out a contract and then once that ended they stopped? Like how do you feel like that worked out? Do you think like or did they just tell the pay-per-view providers like, hey, we want to just do like real pay-per-views now with for full price? And they yeah, were like I'm sure sick. The, I'm <laughs> sure the pay-per-view providers didn't have a problem with that. Yeah, I think they were just desperate and they needed the money. Well, I mean they all, probably that, it really did kind of save the company. Like that was a big infusion of cash right when they needed it because it turned out like not only did the buy rates not go down, they actually went up even though they were charging more. It's just wild to me that that's not something they would have tried to do earlier. And I guess it's probably like felt pretty risky, I guess like, like maybe people won't buy those pay-per-views. It'll turn off the whole market maybe, but fuck man, it's not, you got to do something. Yeah. I mean, overall, I enjoyed this pay-per-view a surprising amount. I think I, I just love this year, 1997. I find this to be the most interesting year of the Attitude Era, even if it's not necessarily the best. I fucking loved this show. 
it was like a total nostalgia moment for me. This takes me right back to the time where I was falling in love with wrestling. But also, like, Michaels versus Austin is a match I'd maybe seen one time before this. Like, it's felt so fresh and amazing. Like, Triple H versus Mankind was really interesting. Every match on this show, with the exception of Goldust versus Crush, which was <laughs> yeah, an that, abomination. That should not have been allowed to happen. Everywhere on this show, you can feel, A, that the wrestlers are busting their fucking asses trying to make this work. You really get the sense that, like, everybody's kind of pulling together to try to, like, right the ship. And, like, while Sean and Brett are fist fighting in the background, everyone else is just like, we've all got to put on a good show or we're all out of a job in a week. So, like, can we get this together, please? Yeah, interesting pay with you. I don't know if I'd say, like... Go out of your way to watch the whole thing. But, you know, there's a worse way to kill an afternoon or an evening. Um, oh, it's two hours and 47 minutes. It's a great use of your time. De- definitely check out the Austin Michaels match if you haven't seen it before, or if it's been a while. Yeah, what you should do is just listen to this show, which is about an hour and a half, and then watch that match. And then you've only spent two hours, and then you don't exactly. need to watch the rest. <laughs> Ooh. So, yeah. Um Next time, um, something we're going to have a lot of fun with, ECW One Night Stand 2005, the original ECW reunion show. Um, It was amazing that this show ever happened, and they totally pulled it off. It is amazing the many, many, many circuitous routes that this show took before it finally got convinced Vince because of the sales of a DVD. Like, that's how this mad fever dream actually happened like all of the fallout that came from like the fist fight at the end and like the involvement of the wwe guys and like one of the hottest crowds in the history of wrestling this was a special night yeah um insane that this ever happened and it ends up being like one of the best pay-per-views wwe ever put on i mean i feel like it was the best ecw pay-per-view because honestly most ecw pay-per-views weren't very good yeah if you wonder why we haven't covered more of ECW pay-per-views, it's because there aren't a lot of good ones, guys. This is the unfortunate fact of ECW that by the time they started getting national exposure, they had lost most of their best talent. Yeah, mostly what ECW was was a TV show. Uh, in terms of pay-per-views, not great. But hey, maybe if this is popular, we'll do some more. You never know. Like this, We have lots more time on our hands. So yeah. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.